All right, go ahead and pull your Bibles out. We are once again in the book of Amos. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the black Bible in the pew in front of you. And somebody has stolen my Bible. Grant, will you check the... Is it over here? Ah, it was you then. So let's do a little review. If you weren't here last week, I don't want you to be completely lost. Uh, The Lord, by uh, the power of his word, called a people to become uh, the nation of Israel. He did that through our father Abraham. And then we see that lineage sort of being carried on out through a couple generations of Abraham's children until eventually the Israelites found themselves as slaves in the land of Egypt. The Lord, by the strength of his power, rescued his people from the land of Egypt, delivered them through the wilderness, carried them on into the promised land. Now, things did not go well for the Israelites there in the promised land, and it was not God's fault, it was their fault. It was because they continued to walk in sin. And so the Israelites go through this sort of, this pattern of God graciously calls them to himself, and they sin, and the Lord sends a prophet, or he raises up a judge or some kind of ruler to go call the people of Israel to repentance, and then they repent, and the Lord is merciful and kind, and he forgives them of their sins, and, and then they sin again, and then the cycle just sort of continues on and on and on. Well, eventually the people of Israel call for themselves a king. God said, hey, I'm your king, you don't need a king, and the people were like, no, we need a king. So they have a king, and it doesn't go well for them. But after some time, with enough grace, God brings uh, King David to them. That went really well. And then there was King Solomon. That, that went pretty well until Solomon, the end of his life. Then he died, and his two sons that he leaves behind, they kind of start a civil war in the nation of Israel. And then the, the nation splits. So you have the, the ten tribes in the north, what are often referred to as Samaria, and, or just Israel, and then you have the two tribes in the south. You have Judah and Benjamin. After the split, you'll remember, uh, the king of the north remembered that the temple uh, w- that was built by Solomon is in the south, and he says, well, politically, it's probably not a good idea for me to have my people go south and worship, worship at the temple, so I'm going to build my own temple. So he built two temples, one in Bethel, one in Dan, both of them in the northern region of Samaria. He did not get God's approval for this, nor did he get God's approval for building idols in the land of Israel. Nevertheless, that is exactly what he did. So, in the days of Amos, a couple centuries have passed since the split of the kingdom, and I think all of Israel in the north and in the south feels like things are going pretty well. They have both uh, had some military victories. They have both had their borders expanded. And that means that they have also prospered financially. So they think that everything is going well when in fact things are going quite bad. So the Lord sends Amos, a prophet from the southern region, from Judah. He sends them up north into Bethel to prophesy against the ten northern tribes. And he says, listen, things are actually really, 
really bad. The Lord God is about to send his wrath upon you for your sins, and you don't even know it. And that leads us to today's text. We're going to be in Amos chapter 2, all of chapter 2, starting in verses 6, reading on down through 16. So follow along as I read aloud. Thus says the Lord, For the three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and who led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets, and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Well, behold, I will press you down in your place. As a cart full of sheaves presses down, I will press you down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. Father, uh, this is what we need more than anything else in the world. So we pray that you would help us to be focused on what you have to say to us this morning. Uh, We pray that you would encourage our hearts and that you would also, uh, yeah, show us our sins so that we might repent of them and walk in the fullness of fellowship that we can have with you in our righteousness. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. So I've got three points for you this morning, note takers. Point number one, the sins of Israel. If you want to do a little outline, that's verses six through eight. Point number two, the strength of God. That'll be verses nine through 11. And then point number three, the strength of Israel. That'll be verses 13 through 16. The sins of Israel, the strength of God, and the strength of Israel. So, point number one. Uh, I think the Lord lays out five sins of, of Israel here. More than five sins, but I think we can categorize them uh, under these five things. Greed, sexual immorality, hypocrisy, hardness of heart, and defaming the name of Yahweh. So let's look at each one of these in turn. This is going to be pretty rapid fire, so try to stay with me. If, if you were tempted to close your Bibles after we got through reading, don't. Keep them open, because we're going to be looking at the text a lot this morning. So, the first sin that we see is that of greed. 
Now, there are a couple of different ways that we see this sin of greed expressed during the days of Amos in the land of Israel. Uh, The first issue that we see is that of bribery. If you look at the second half of verse 6, you'll see that bribery is being practiced in the land. It says, uh, because they sell the righteous for silver. They sell the righteous for silver. This is probably referring to bribery, and it's, it's probably referring to judges who are taking bribes in civil matters. Okay, so the Lord has already warned his people that this would be a problem, and when he gave them the law, he told them not to do it. He says in Exodus 23, 8, and you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Now, it's true that we should certainly not try to give bribes. We should not try to use our money to tilt the scales of justice uh, one way or another. But I think the context that we see here in Amos is that of judges who are receiving bribes. And instead of giving the righteous their due process, their, their fair treatment in court, they're receiving a bribe and they're actually punishing the righteous for things that they're not guilty of. Okay, the second issue of greed that we see here is the Israelites are selling their neighbors into slavery. They are selling their fellow Israelites into slavery. Uh, Leviticus 25, verses 39 through 41 says this. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you into the end of the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. So this is a pretty amazing portion of the law. The Lord, the Lord says two things to the people of Israel. One, he says, listen, you, you can't sell your neighbors into slavery. We're, we're not like the pagan nations around us. That's not the way that we do things. But on the other hand, he says, you know, you can't just give them a handout and rob them of the dignity that comes with working. So what is he supposed to do? Well, if you see that your neighbor's poor, you hire him as an indentured servant. You take care of him and his basic necessities. You let them have room and board with you. They go out and they work for you. And if they pay off their debt before the year of Jubilee, great, they're free to go. But if they don't, when the year of Jubilee comes, then they are free to go. Now, apparently, the people of Samaria had either forgotten this law or they were just flat out ignoring it. You can see in verse 6, it says, uh, yeah, it says, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. So not only are they selling their neighbors into slavery, they're doing it over essentially nothing, a pair of sandals. Think about it like this. Imagine that you go out and you buy a $100,000 house, right? And uh, you're making $500 a month mortgage payments. And so for years and years, you make those mortgage payments and you pay and you pay and you pay. And then right before your last payment is due, you lose your job and you can't make the last payment. The mortgage company says, hey, I can't help you. You owe us $500. Either pay it or we're going to foreclose on your house. And then you don't have it to give and they foreclose on your house. Well, I mean, they're, they're foreclosing on your house for essentially nothing. You've, you've basically paid them nine, $99,500, but they're going to foreclose on your house over $500. Well, that kind of minutia is what we see happening here in the lives of the Israelites. Now, 
Verse 7 sort of summarizes these greed-related sins. It says that the Samaritans were trampling the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. Right? Uh, love God and love your neighbor, that's not something that Jesus came up with or the Apostle Paul. Right? This is, the Lord has been telling his people that's the essence of true religion since the very beginning of the time that he called them to be a people. Leviticus 19 he commands the people, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, it seems like in the days of Amos, the people of Israel have come to love money more than they love their neighbor. And because of that, they are crushing the poor that live among them. The next area of sin is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. As the Israelites grow in affluence, as they become more wealthy, they grow in their comfort with sexual perversion. You see an example of this in verse 7. Look there with me. It says, uh, it's in the second half of the verse, it says, a man and his father go into the same girl. Now, this girl that the man and his father go into is likely a servant girl in the house of a wealthy person, in a wealthy person's home. Now, we don't really have arrangements like this in modern-day America, but you should know that this kind of arrangement is actually pretty common in a lot of developing countries, especially third-world countries. You have uh, situations where a, a girl from a village, her family's very poor, they can't afford to take care of her, so they send her into the city to go live with a wealthy family, and she works for the wealthy family. If you've seen the movie, movie Roma about a doctor in Mexico in the 70s, it's the exact same setup. There's a maid girl who comes from a poor village. Her parents can't afford to take care of her, so she goes and she lives with a wealthy family. She has room and board and food and maybe a little bit of walking around money provided for, and in exchange, she serves the family. She's kind of a part of the family, but not really. Well, you can imagine that it's, it's probably pretty easy to take advantage of a young woman in this situation, right? She has no one to go to. She has no advocate. She has no family. She has no social support network. She has no money or resources to leave if she wants to. Now, the people of God, they should know better than to take advantage of somebody who is poor and weak and destitute because they themselves were at one time poor and weak and destitute. They were at one time the oppressed. They should also have in their collective conscience the story of their forefather Joseph, who was a servant in the home of an owner who oppressed him. Now, in this situation, it's different. He was a man and she was a woman, but the same, the same principles are playing out. There's somebody who has no options being, in taken, being taken advantage of by the person who's in authority over them. And this image of a father and a son taking sexual advantage of their servant girl, it's a picture of just how far from righteousness the people of Israel have fallen. It's not hard to think of modern day examples of this. You think about a, a mom who, who really needs her job because she's a single parent. She needs to put food on the table and her boss knows that and takes advantage of her. You can think about a CEO who takes advantage of a young career woman who is so overly ambitious that she will do literally anything to get, in, get ahead and the boss knows it. 
Tragically, I think we can even point to examples of this in the life of the church. Right? We have examples, far, far too many examples of pastors who take advantage of women in the congregation using their spiritual authority, using their money, preying on weak-willed women. During my time in Peru, I had to deal with a, a local missionary who was going to widowed mothers and saying, yeah, I know that you need food and clothes and education for your kids. You know, if you give me what I want, I'll give you what you need. Number three, hypocrisy. The third sin that we see here is hypocrisy. Now, I think the second sin, sexual immorality, and the third sin, hypocrisy, could have been combined. And I think you'll see why when you look at uh, verse 8. It says, They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. Now here we see that the Israelites, they're lying down. I think this is a euphemism. It's referring to their sexual sin. But it says that they're doing so in front of altars, these pagan altars in the land. Uh, they're probably doing that because it was believed uh, according to certain religions back then, that if you went and had sexual relations in front of a god of fertility, that perhaps they would bless you and allow you to have a baby, okay? So that's what's happening here. But it gets worse. In ancient Israel, if you needed to borrow some money from a moneylender, you would leave your, your cloak or your coat with the moneylender as a guarantee, okay? This reminds me of like, back when I used to be in the Boys and Girls Club and I wanted to like, check out equipment from the, from the rec closet, I had to go leave my student ID there and then I could get the basketball or the pool cue or whatever I wanted, right? And then when I returned the recreational things, they gave me my student ID back. It's the same kind of thing. You want to borrow some money, you got to leave your cloak with me. Well, it, uh, it seems like the nation of Israel has gotten so perverted, they have fallen so far into the pit of evil that when they lie down beside this altar to have this pagan worship sexual experience, they are doing it and they're using the garments of poor people as their sheets. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. Then, if you keep on going in verse 8, you see that things are even worse than that. It says, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Now listen, we don't know a lot about how this economic system worked, but we do know a little bit. We know that it was not uncommon for the Israelites to pay uh, temples, tax, or civil fines. They would use wine as a form of payment. So what we have here is it seems like... Uh, it seems like these Israelites are not only doing all these sexually perverted things, but they're also going into the temple, and I'm using that with air quotes around it because it's the sort of unauthorized temple. They're going into the temple, and they're having these drunken orgies on wine that they probably got by taking advantage of poor people in their midst. So can, can you see just how messed up it's getting as you read these first couple of verses in chapter 2 of Amos, you just see that there's just layer after layer after layer after layer of depravity. Seems like the Lord is building his case against the people. Which leads us to the next point. 
Hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. Or excuse me, not the next point, the next, uh, the next sin in Israel. Hardness of heart. Uh, so we know what a prophet is. We've talked about that at length. A prophet is the, uh, the mouthpiece of God, right? It's the, the bullhorn that the Lord uses to speak his word to the nations. But what about the Nazarites? We don't really know a whole lot about the Nazarites, but we do know that they were men of Israel who consecrated themselves for special service to the Lord. And, and the reason why they did this is they were meant to be living, breathing examples of holiness in the midst of God's people. So on the one hand, you have prophets who are meant to communicate God's word vocally. On the other hand, you have Nazarites who were meant to communicate God's word and his will and his character by their example. So in verse 12, we see that the Lord gave this gift to the Israelites. He says, and I raised up some of your prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? But then he goes on to say, sorry, that was in verse 11. Then in verse 12, he goes on to say, but you made the Nazarites drink wine and you commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. You see what's happening here? The people of Israel loved their sin so much and their hearts were so hard towards the God who loved them and called them and made them into a people that when God sent his prophets to, to lovingly call them to repentance, they made the prophets shut up. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, uh, makes, to make a prophet shut up probably means to kill them. So they were killing prophets. And not only that, but they were getting the Nazarites drunk with wine. If you know anything about the Nazarites, they weren't allowed to drink wine. That was part of their dedication. They were supposed to be especially set apart, and part of that was you didn't drink wine. So you see that the people of Israel, not only are their consciences pricked over the prophets speaking truth to them, their consciences are also pricked by people just living holy lives in their presence. I think most of us know what it feels like to, to experience uh, anger at someone for telling us the truth about ourselves and calling us to repentance. But I think we can also identify with these Israelites in that we know what it feels like when we're around somebody who's more holy than us. And if we love our sin, we hate it. We hate to be around someone more holy than us because just being around them our conscience is being pricked. We're being told just by looking at them, oh yeah, this is what God is like. And this is how I'm supposed to live, and I'm not doing that. And I don't want to give up my sin. So what do we do? Well, the Nazarites were forced to drink wine. The Israelites' way of getting rid of them was to get them to break their vows and to just become regular Israelites just like them. Now the next sin is profaning the name of the Lord. Profaning the name of the Lord. Now, I think all the, the four previous sins here, I think they can all be summarized under this fifth sin, profaning the name of the Lord. Go, go to verse 7. After talking about selling the righteous for silver and after talking about selling the needy for a pair of sandals and trampling the head of the poor into the earth, he says, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. Living these sexually immoral lives, 
being greedy, taking advantage of the poor, all of this stuff, it defames the name of the Lord. Uh, this is pretty serious if you remember the, the whole reason why God called Israel was to be a holy nation, was to be a priesthood. They were supposed to reflect God's holy character to the nations around them. So in Exodus 19, 5, God says this, Although the whole earth is mine, you, he's talking to Israel, will be for me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. So not only were God's people supposed to be a holy testimony, but they were also su supposed to be a beacon of light wherein God used them to display his glory to the nations. You can see that in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Listen, listen to the Lord reason his way through calling the nation of Israel. He says, What other nation on earth is like your people, Israel, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name? and doing great and terrible things. Why did God call the nation of Israel? Well, he was making himself a name. There's something about what God was doing by creating Israel that would bring his name much glory. It was establishing a holy reputation. And so when the Israelites are not living righteous and holy lives, they're not reflecting God's character to the nations, instead, instead of glorifying his name, they're defaming his name. And those are the sins of Israel. Point number two, the strength of God. <clears throat> this is all in verses 9 through 11. In order to help us understand these verses, I'm just going to ask a series of questions and then give the answer. Who rescued Israel from slavery? Well, verse 10 says it was the Lord. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Well, who led Israel through the wilderness for 40 years? Again, verse 10 tells us, and led you 40 years in the wilderness. Okay, but who destroyed the Amorites that were in the promised land when Israel wanted to go into the promised land? Well, verse 9 tells us, it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of cedars and who was as strong as oaks. Was it an easy task? No, you, you see the way that it was described here. These Amorites, they're like mighty cedars. They're strong as oaks. Not only did the Lord destroy them, but it says that he utterly destroyed them. Look at the end of verse 9. It says, I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. So if you remember during our time in Malachi, in Malachi chapter 4, we saw the same imagery of a fire that is so potent. It's so all-consuming that not only does it destroy what's above ground, but it destroys what's under the ground. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 says, The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And this is what the Lord did to the Amorites. Who gave his people spiritual leaders? Did Israel give herself spiritual leaders? No, verse 11 tells us, I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your men to be Nazarites. I did it. So do you get the point of what the Lord is trying to drive home in verses 9 through 11? Israel has come to see herself as strong. A couple of military victories, 
the expansion of her borders, some economic prosperity, and all of a sudden the nation of Israel thinks that they're God. They think that their strength actually belongs to themselves. And the Lord is here to tell them, your strength is not your own. You don't have any strength. And what little strength you think that you had, you used it and are still using it to oppress the people who are among you. Instead of using that strength to glorify my name, you're using it to crush people, to crush the, po- the heads of the poor into the dust of the earth. And so the Lord, he comes along and he says, hey, you couldn't rescue yourself. I rescued you. Left up to your own devices, you would have never made it through the wilderness. I led you through the wilderness. In the strength of your own power, you never would have been able to conquer the Amorites. You never would have been able to go into the promised land. But I'm the one who accomplished that for you. If you needed religious help, if you needed help trying to hear from me, you would never hear from me because your sin has made you blind and deaf. So I raised up prophets in your midst so I could communicate my love to you. The Lord comes along and he reminds them that he is the one who is actually strong. Point number three, the strength of Israel. Uh, I think one of the most underappreciated uh, um, animated movies is Megamind. Almost nobody talks about it, right? But it's fantastic. Will, Will Ferrell? Come on. It's amazing. In this movie, there's a guy named uh, Hal Stewart. And Hal is a small, soft, soggy, wimpy character, okay? I mean, he is just, uh, he's the kind of guy that you would expect to get picked on, the kind of guy that you would expect to live in his mom's basement, playing video games, eating Doritos, and drinking Diet Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew, sorry, Freudian slip. Okay. Now, at one point in this movie, uh, Hal becomes a superhero. He, he acquires superpowers. And after that, he, you know, he puts on his superhero mask, which definitely hides his identity, and then he puts on his full-body spandex suit, and he goes out. But instead of going out to fight crime, instead of going out to serve the people of Metro City and using his strength to help those who are in need, Titan, as he has now come to be known, Titan, he uses his strength to be a bully. He starts taking advantage of the people in the city. He starts oppressing people in the land. It's almost like he doesn't remember what it was be like, what it was like to be the oppressed person. He can't remember as Titan what it was like to be Hal. I think that that's what's happening here with the nation of Israel. The rich and powerful people that Israel has become, they've become big bullies. They've forgotten what it's like to be the oppressed slaves in Egypt. And so now they have become the oppressors. They get a little taste of power and they are drunk on it. But God comes in in verse 13 and he reminds Israel that she's really not that strong after all. Look, look there in verse 13. He says, Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty 
shall flee away naked in that day. The Lord is saying, just like I crushed the Amorites, I'm now going to crush you. In the same way that I rescued you from the oppression of Egypt, I am now going to rescue the oppressed people of Israel from you and your oppression. Look at the contrast between, go back to verse 7, the first part of verse 7, 7a, and then we'll go back to verse 13 to notice the contrast. In verse 7 he says, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. That's what he says the Israelites are doing. They're trampling the heads of the poor into the dust of the earth. And then if you look at verse 13, he says, Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. So if, if a cart full of sheaves doesn't really mean anything to you, just imagine a, a big old wagon with a bunch of grain in the back. And the, the, the weight of the grain in the wagon is so heavy that it goes down into the earth and it crushes the earth down in its place. So the contrast is the Lord says, listen, in the same way that you crush the poor down into the earth, I'm going to crush you down into the earth. The Lord says that the fast will become slow. The strong will become weak. The brave will become timid. And the warrior will not be able to count on his technical superiority. It doesn't matter if he has a bow. It doesn't matter if he rides a horse He can't count on that when the Lord comes to do justice. You can't outrun the Lord. You're not going to be stronger than the Lord. Your technology is not more advanced than the Lord and his ability to wage war. This morning's text reminds me uh, of one of Johnny Cash's last recorded songs. It's so simple uh, that I think you might miss the power behind it, but when you listen to it in relation to these verses, it actually seems like it's just full. It's, just, it's overflowing with biblical truth about the nature of God's justice and his wrath. He says, well, you may throw your rock and hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man. But as sure as God made black and white, what's done in the dark will be brought to the light. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. Friends, you should know that the Lord hears the cries of the oppressed. He is not deaf to them when they cry out and they say, how long, O Lord? The Lord says in Exodus 22, verse 26, they cry out to him and he will hear for he is compassionate. Maybe rather than quoting more Johnny Cash, I can just quote the prophet Isaiah. He says this, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to those who deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captains, excuse me, the captives, or fall among the slain. This is what's going to happen to the nation of Israel, as we talked about last week with the judgment of Assyria. Now, uh, I think Peter, you know, the disciple Peter, I think uh, 
it's amazing the way the Lord works. I think he, in his whole life, is a personification of the nation of Israel, right? Just everywhere he goes, everything he does, it's all bad, it's all dumb. He screws up almost every time he opens his mouth. And there's just this pattern of mercy where like the Lord is just continuously being kind to him, even though he doesn't deserve it at all. Well, I think you see the same thing with Israel, right? If Peter is the personification of that. And, and one of the things is about Peter is we love to judge Peter, right? Peter's the guy that we love to pick on. Man, that, that dumb Peter, right? But hopefully when we learn to read our Bibles well, we stop judging Peter and we start identifying with Peter. And every time we see Peter make a, a mistake, we, we go, oh yeah, I could very easily see myself being just as dumb as that. And if you don't read your Bible like that, you just need to get to know the holiness of God a little bit more so that you can understand your sin a little bit more clearly. I say all that to say it's tempting for us to be uh, super critical and harsh as we hear about these sins of the nation of Israel and their oppression, the way that they're treating the poor, the way they're taking advantage of people and doing all these things. But I'd like for you to consider for a moment that perhaps the only reason you've never like seriously oppressed somebody is just that you haven't had the means to, you know. I mean, a funny thing happens when you give people money and power. When there's no restraints, when there's no limiting factors that maybe society or God's providence have placed upon you, a lot of our true character comes to light. And I've seen people change. And who knows, maybe if you became a millionaire or a billionaire and you could just kind of do whatever you want, maybe you would be the kind of person too who would oppress the poor. I hope not if you're a Christian. I'd also like for you to consider the possibility that you have oppressed your neighbor in ways that maybe you haven't even recognized. You know, it's not uncommon for people to come to realize like, oh, I didn't even realize I've been sinning like that my whole life, right? I know most of us are probably fatigued with the race discussions in America, but friends, it has to be pointed out that one of the most common things that I'm seeing happening today is for white people to step back and go, oh no, I didn't realize I've actually been pretty racist most of my life, and unless these conversations happened, I probably never would have come to that conclusion. So maybe you, maybe you, maybe you have oppressed people and you just don't even realize it. Or maybe you do realize it. Maybe you're sitting there this morning in their pew and you're thinking about a time that you did oppress somebody and it's kind of just been eating away at your soul. Well, brothers and sisters, today is as good a day as any to just repent and to confess and to seek reconciliation and to go out and apologize to somebody that perhaps you've taken advantage of. Maybe you haven't been as greedy as the Israelites, but perhaps you've been greedy in your own way without realizing it. Maybe you're not taking advantage of the poor in your greed, but how is greed manifesting in your life? The easiest way to tell is to just look at your bank account, see where your money's going. You know? Maybe you haven't oppressed the poor, but maybe you've robbed God. Uh, if you're a member of this church, uh, you know that we're not all about the money. If you're a visitor in this church, this next point might seem a little weird to you. Just know that we don't talk about this often. But, you know, maybe you haven't been giving to the local church and supporting the work of gospel ministry. Maybe you haven't been supporting missionaries. Maybe you just haven't been using your money for kingdom purposes. You haven't been investing your money in things that will matter, that will matter eternally. Instead, you're just sowing into your own flesh. You're just putting money where it goes right here on this earth, and you're doing nothing with it. 
Maybe you haven't been bold enough to bribe a judge and maybe you've never been in a position to receive a bribe. Perhaps you've used your money or your influence or your family connections to shift the scales of justice in your favor or in the favor of a friend. Maybe you haven't teamed up with your dad to take advantage of a servant girl, but perhaps you've been supporting sexual slavery as you watch pornography. Just a week ago, excuse me, I think it was this week, police found a 15-year-old girl who had been missing for over a year. You know how they found her? on the most popular pornography site that there is out there. They found videos of her, and through these videos, they were able to locate her. This girl reported that she was impregnated while she was held captive, and then she was forced to have an abortion during her time of enslavement. Friends, the sex industry would not be able to exist and thrive the way it does if there was no market for it. Her videos wouldn't be up on that site if men and women didn't go and visit that site. Perhaps you haven't actively oppressed the poor, but have you, have you loved the poor? Have you served the poor that God has placed in your midst? Can you tell me with a straight face that you have not defamed the name of the Lord in some way, even this week, with your lifestyle? The fact is, brothers and sisters, we are no better than Israel. We are often sexually immoral, hypocritical, and greedy. Our hearts are often hard to the word of the Lord. We often hate the examples of holiness in our midst. That's the reason why anybody who cares more about holiness than us, we call him a Pharisee. The truth of the matter is, we too deserve to be crushed down into the earth under the weight of God's wrath and perfect judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to be. Isaiah 53 tells us about God's great salvation and notice the language that he uses here. It says, but he, speaking of Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Now, for the ten tribes of northern Israel, there's no going back. The Lord has already said in verse 4 that he's not going to relent. This covenant punishment is going to come on Israel no matter what. But for everyone in this room, there is still time to repent. There is still time to trust in Jesus and to receive him as the one who took the the crushing load of God's wrath that you should have taken. I also want us to consider this, uh, this theme, these verses, corporately. Right? I want us to consider the fact that even as a church, we still fall short of the glory of God. We still sin. We still fail to reflect his, his holy name the way that we should. And so I think what that means is we have to be prepared to look at ourselves and to be honest about our sin. We need to ask ourselves, are we, as a church, glorifying the name of the Lord? or defaming it? Well, in light of what I think should be an honest answer to that question, which would be yes, I'm going to have my brother Grant come up uh, and lead us in a corporate prayer of confession uh, as we end the sermon. So join me as we 
Pray with Grant. Please join me in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we come before you this morning uh, to confess our sins. And we know that you uh, see all things, that on the last day, every hidden little secret will be revealed. So we ask you to please help us let go of our sins this morning as we confess them to you. Uh, we confess that we have sought to fulfill our own needs, and we have ignored the needs of others. Uh, some of us have spent our money foolishly and frivolously, and have had nothing left to offer when a brother and sister was in need. Some of us possess gifts and abilities that we have used to benefit and promote our own selves and our own interests, and we have refused to share these for the benefit of even the people closest to us. Some of us have spent too much time working, or too much time or on our own hobbies or our own interests, and we've had no time left over to read the Bible or to pray with our families or to evangelize our coworkers, or to uplift and encourage the members of our own church. We have used our own time and talent and treasure, uh, things that are not our own but are all gifts from you for our own benefit and not for the good of others. And Lord, for these sins, Jesus was nailed to the cross. We confess that some of us have committed sexual sin this week. We read of your judgment against the Israelites, how a father and a son uh, went into the same girl, and we immediately find ourselves justifying our own sins, saying that what we've done pales in comparison to that. But we have lusted with our eyes, we have wanted with our bodies, and our hearts have been full of passionate desire for men and women who are not our husbands or not our wives. Lord, we have committed adultery in our hearts and we have profaned your holy name. And for these sins, Jesus was nailed to the cross. Lord, we confess that many of us have defiled ourselves in other ways. We've eaten far too much. We've wanted far more than you've given us, finding ourselves unfulfilled by your blessings and finding ourselves unfulfilled by Jesus. We've made ourselves part of foolish controversies, arguing for the sake of being right, forgetting that we are supposed to be set apart by you. We've been lazy, not making use of the time, but using the time to do nothing at all. And above it all, Lord, we have been too proud to confess our sins to you and to others. And for these sins, Jesus was nailed to the cross. Lord, not only have we done these things, not only have we sinned against you in these ways, but many of us have also been hypocrites, ignoring our own sins and instead pointing out and scoffing at the sins of others. 
in our hearts or out loud to others. And Lord, in doing so, we have compounded our own condemnation. Lord, and for these sins, we deserve to be crushed. But Lord, we know that as Peter preached and told your people that they themselves had killed the Lord and Savior of all the earth, they who had killed Jesus were cut to the core and were saved. We know that no matter how we have sinned against you, that Jesus bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was crushed for our sins and pierced for our iniquities. So, Lord, we confess all these sins to you and many more. And we ask that you would please forgive us of our sins this morning against one another and against you. In Jesus' name, amen.